Hello, friends. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch. This is your Mr. Robot Recap Podcast, brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. And I'm Devlin. This episode, I think I've heard some critiques that it's just fan service, but, you know, I guess I'll respond to that with, I mean, who else should a show serve? (laughs) I guess if they had to pick, the fans are the best person to serve. And um, that's not to say that we don't appreciate it either. I think that in part... um, I do see how people could think of it as fan service, but I also think of how it took the expectations that we had and still twisted them up at the end just to keep us on our toes. Twisted them up just like our hearts. <laughs> it's, um, you know, that scene in um, The Simpsons where Rainier Wolf Castle says, a mighty heart is breaking. <laughs> I actually don't know that. Can you try and say it in his voice? I feel like I'll embarrass myself and possibly the original actor um, by attempting an accent that isn't mine. But uh, yes, my my mighty my mighty heart uh, was breaking as I watched this episode several times. In fact, yeah. And if you look closely, you can see the exact minute your heart breaks. Remember, in our early episodes, we used to pick a moment every episode where our, where we'd say that quote. So it's all come full circle. I'm starting to realize that I have a problem with quoting The Simpsons, even in times when it's not appropriate and people don't understand what I'm talking about. So I'm really trying to cut down on it by now. Yes, I think I also should make an effort to do such a thing. And maybe I'll try to limit myself to one reference for this episode, which begins in Dominique's hospital room. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's uh, it's kind of interesting to see that Dom has survived. So I guess we're all really happy to hear about that. One thing I wanted to talk about was to do with um, the episode's title. It's one that I've kind of been looking forward to this whole season, and I feel like I've just been like piling up things to talk about, um, like a snowball for when this episode actually came up. So, um, first of all, the um, the symbolism of like the four ten gone status code is um, very important because. Um, when you're actually working with that in terms of like a, a web server, what it's trying to say is that the resource you're accessing not only isn't accessible, but it is permanently inaccessible. Like you can never ever reach it again. Back in uh, the early 2000s, there was an author whose name was um, Mark Pilgrim. And he had a quote which said, um, to embrace HTTP 410 is to embrace the impermanence of all things. So that already starts out from a pretty like um, poignant and philosophical perspective. But um, about a decade later in 2010, um, he decided to abruptly delete every book and every like blog post or tweet and all of his source code online. And he replaced them with like the 410 gone status code. So it's something that's come to be called um, info suicide after he had basically invented it, which is to say when you take all of your online publications and delete them and replace them with this um, 410 gone code. And there have also been other examples of people who did that around the same time, such as um, Why the Lucky Steph, who had really different motivations because his were more about um, interpreting like his code as an art form and then destroying it as part of that art in and of itself. When I think that Mark Pilgrim was just really tired of talking to people and what's me bothered with like uh, maintaining his projects anymore. But um, the 410 gone code is one that like um, 
ultimately is is really symbolic to people who like know their internet history because of its association with um, info suicide by way of um, Mark Pilgrim and other people like Why the Lucky Stiff. That's really interesting that you bring that up because we in a recent episode were having a bit of a conversation about ephemeral art and the nature of things that are meant to be kind of temporary and elusive and impermanent and how so much of our lives are like that. Um, you talked about the 410 referring to a resource that's no longer there. Do you think you can draw a parallel between that idea and this episode? I think that I can, but I also just wanted to tap in a bit more to what you had said in that first sentence there, which is about um, how art can sometimes involve um, like destruction and evolution. Um, before Why the Lucky Stiff had deleted all of his online posts, some of his tweets had included, um, this, this is a quote from his page that says, if you program and want any longevity to your work, you should make a game. All else recycles, but people rewrite architectures to keep games alive. So I think that what he's doing is kind of like drawing a distinction between programming as a form of art and programming as a form of um, like business management or things like that, which kind of always does have an iterative cycle because um, it becomes better and better at its job. But when you interpret programming as an art form instead, then um, it's something that is kind of timeless and irrespective of the platform that you're running it on. And actually, I want to pick up on one thing in what you've just said, if that's all right. Sure. I think it the notion that you're talking about, about a game can live forever, I think part of that is fans and users of that game keep it alive and create you know, the, a demand and insistence that it be kept alive. And that kind of links back to what Price said about Angela's untimely death and that she would be kept alive by all of the people that love her. Yeah. And not to take it into like an even more abstract dimension. One thing I was thinking of was how when these people had um, deleted all of their source code, even though they had unpublished it themselves, people who had downloaded a copy of it's like, by the nature of free and open source software, we're able to share it and kind of um, still maintain distribution of the software that you created, even though they were trying to remove it themselves. So um, it made me think of um, this book by one of my heroes who is way better than the Beatles, and I'm going to fight you over it, um, Yoko Ono. In Yoko Ono's book, um, Grapefruits, she has a, a poem that's called um, Painting to Exist Only When It's Copied or Photographed. The text is simply, let people copy or photograph your paintings, destroy the originals. So I was kind of thinking of how, um, because these people had deleted their source code, but it still um, maintains distribution throughout the community by decentralized um, like principles of free software, but it's, it's, it still kind of exists in spite of them trying to remove it. I think one uh, temptation might be if I were trying to link the title of the episode to the storyline is that all of the riches amassed by the Deus group are now gone. And that's part of what's being reported on the news uh, in this hospital room. Yeah, it is really nice to see that that actually um, did have a really big impact on the data script after all. I really love how they unroll the conclusion of that story, uh, which I had sort of 
I guess I hadn't really thought too much about what they were going to do with the resources, but we'll get to talk about what they do with the resources a little bit later on. Yeah, I mean, it's stadium money, so they're probably going to buy a stadium, right? <laughs> they Somebody should buy a stadium. <laughs> I don't know what they'll do with it. They don't... F Society doesn't seem very sporting to me, but, you know, this is a storytelling tool. This show is used a few times where the newscast in the background delivers information that's just as important as what's happening in the foreground between the actors. So we do know that the news outlets are working to verify all of the information that was leaked uh, when F Society doxed the Deus group and that the whole world is now aware that Zheng is White Rose and leader of the Dark Army. So that's a pretty big revelation. I also think it's interesting how um, when it comes to these recordings, you can see it always tends to be the same news anchor who they either have on the TV screen or in person. It's a different actress for each one, but it's always consistent either way. I was actually trying to set it was the same actor because it, I think there are a couple of them who are just sort of women with a similar haircut about the same age. But, uh, I, you know, I wondered if there was like an F society beat at the news station. You know, that'd be your assignment. <laughs> that sounds pretty fun, actually. I think this moment is pretty heartbreaking for Dom because she thinks back to that moment where she's touring Zhang's house and they're in China and Zhang shows her that cabinet of beautiful dresses and she realizes that all those months ago they were trying to show her who they really were and she was oblivious to it. Yeah, and I think there's a really impactful quote here which calls all the way back to... Um maybe the season two finale, the, the moth and the flame scene. Do you remember what Darlene had said when she first looks upon the uh, minds map that the FBI had built? I don't remember. She says, you've got to be fucking kidding me, which is exactly what Dom says here when she realizes that Zhang and White Rose are the same person. That is a nice parallel. Um, a lot nicer than Dom is as a patient. She is a terrible patient oh well i remember being in this exact same situation once so i've got to sympathize i'm also a terrible patient so me too um, i'm an impatient you could say <laughs> <laughs> you could say that you could um dom is being advised by an fbi i guess investigator of some sort um, that I think essentially she's suspended pending an investigation that she may be charged criminally. And none of this is quite as devastating as the news that her family is being held at a safe house in a location that is not going to be disclosed to her. So what do you think that means about Deegan? Do you think that that means that the FBI took over or that they're actually talking to the same safe house? I assume the FBI has taken over, um, because I was trying to think when they say, you know, Dom, these are some serious crimes you've committed. What could those crimes be? So I assumed colluding with him uh, might be one of them. Good point. Because I don't think she's, she hasn't killed anyone for the Dark Army or done anything of that nature. So I thought that's probably the one big thing. Yeah, well, I was just trying to think of how from the FBI's perspective, they might think that some of the things she had done in self-defense, like maybe she, maybe they don't have the same perspective as her, considering she's the only survivor and witness. Absolutely. So they only have her story, and then I assume have to reconstruct the rest. And that's going to take a bit of time. And I think for a workaholic like Dom, that's going to be really difficult. And everyone is trying to tell her to sleep. And you'll see in this episode, nearly every other character in it tries to tell her to get some sleep. 
So the FBI investigator does that and then leaves her. And that's when she makes a break for it. Do you remember what I was saying last episode about how when they focus a lot in the secondary character, it's because they're about to die? I do remember you saying that. So let's see if that holds true for this episode as well. Because um, another bit of... Uh, another thing that makes me worried here is how we have these close-up shots of the Patsy Klein poster back in Dom's apartment when she gets there. Her apartment in the daytime makes me even sadder than her apartment before. Like, I was distraught about the bathtub. That's nothing. <laughs> and when she has a gas stove, I'm envious of that. I am envious of that, too. But I think it's... You mentioned the Patsy Klein poster. Um, I'll ask you why that's significant in a second. But there are really only two pieces of art in that apartment that I can see. And the other one is just... Like one of those sad, generic art pieces that they try to sell to middle-aged white women that says something like, wine will make it all better. <laughs> Live, laugh, love. Yeah. <laughs> or I've seen It's Wine O'Clock recently. Why are they always about wine? <laughs> Um, because of the increasing uh, amount that women turn to alcohol to cope with modern society. But that's a big discussion for another <laughs> podcast, maybe. Maybe in a few years, we'll get into like Xanax uh, mugs or something. Oh, maybe a certain, uh, a certain set of society already has those, you know? <laughs> so um, I think that our personal addiction is about grilled cheeses. Uh, that was a bit of an awkward segue. And um I was wondering what you thought about the grilled cheese that Don uh, makes here. So first, I think it's a sad sandwich and that she's making it because it's like what she has around. You know, obviously she hasn't been grocery shopping for a while. And then I think it really makes me sad when I realize this is a happiness sandwich that she's been looking forward to for years. I guess that really is like the definition of comfort food, where it's something that's kind of like reliable and that she knows she can count on to warm up. Um, I was just thinking like the processed cheese. She's really downgraded from Munster in that episode that introduced her, huh? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, first, I, and I know some people will react badly to this, but I just don't believe in cheese slices. I just, they, I don't know. I just, I, I prefer they not be included in the cheese food group. I would say that the one place they belong is on a cheeseburger. And um, that is exactly what American cheese is made for. Um, but Dave, could you tell me, is, um, is a cheeseburger a grilled cheese? No. No, agree. It's not. Why not? Because the idea of the of the grilled cheese is to grill the bread with the cheese inside of it. So you could argue that like, cheesy garlic bread is a grilled cheese i buy that but one thing we can agree about is um the use of mayo on, on the grilled cheese exterior let's talk about this because there have been quite a few tweets asking what the heck is going on with the mayo situation mayo cooks down to a phenomenal oil and then it's also egg based so you get a lot of flavor on it so it actually like you can burn it at a higher heat than butter and you come out with like a kind of a crispier better flavor Exactly. I think that because it's like an emulsion of oil and um, eggs, you can basically consider it to be like an oil for frying in addition to egg for egg wash at the same time, which gives it like a better golden crust on the inside. And this is our, this is going to be our next podcast, by the way, just a spoiler. <laughs> Although I refuse to acknowledge this mayo situation, I do agree it would be much more spreadable than butter, which often tears your bread when you try to spread it too cold, and mayo just wouldn't have that issue. 
Well, what you do is you put the butter on the pan first and then the bread and then your butter. Yeah. So you kind of like grill it like deep fried in butter. And then you scorch your pan. Yeah. You know, you just gave me an idea to actually deep fry my angle cheese. That's called a Monte Cristo. (laughs) I was making a joke, but that's fantastic (laughs) to hear. So, um... (laughs) How long have we been talking about grilled cheeses now? <laughs> I know a lot about food. I like food. We all we love food. Now, is the grilled cheese burnt? No. Yes. I think it's burnt too. <laughs> you don't think it's burnt? You would cook it that dark? I think that's like you need to cook grilled cheese at a very high temperature so that the outside gets charred, but it doesn't get fully crispy all the way through. It has to maintain like some level of fluffiness and not just get too crunchy. But um, I think that the the charred parts also give it a lot of flavor, which he needs to counteract like the fattiness of, of the cheese itself. So we'll return to the sandwich in a second because Darlene is pounding on the door. She's been looking for Dom. Um, I like how quickly she let, let her in. Like um, she does still seems to have some trust in Darlene. Yes. And we can see she's moved a dresser in front of the door to try to protect herself. So she kind of shimmies it out of the way. And Darlene is really insistent that they have an escape plan. And it's pretty critical that Dom comes with them right away. And Dom, I think, just is kind of checked out of that and maybe still traumatized because she starts talking about how for years she'd been looking forward to making that sandwich and she'd always come home too tired. Now, I've never been too tired to make a sandwich, so I didn't empathize with this moment very much. Yeah, you probably work just as much, too, so that's unbelievable. Um, I love Dom, but her musical taste uh, is deteriorating significantly. It's funny you say that because of the musical direction in this episode that comes up later. It is a little more poppy than I would think. That also is fan service, but we'll talk about that when we get there. Um, I do really like their their married couple bickering <laughs> that they do. It, it's, it's nice, but it's also so sad because of how just... Um, Dom, she's really like not being herself. She just feels like kind of like the ghost of herself. I think that's true. She seems kind of like a pale impression of herself. And one question that's unanswered for me, she talks about how she hasn't slept well in five years. And so what happened five years ago? Good question. I'm not really sure if there's anything that calls back to you in the story at the top of my head. She does also note that she was awake when Darlene mobs her though, so that's something that's um, important to mention. That's true. Um, Darlene is also trying to tell her to get some sleep, so that keeps coming up for her. Darlene tells her that she can't stay there alone, and Dom isn't alone because she has Alexa. Uh-huh. And I loved how they had that um, the interaction with Alexa, which is one of my favorite scenes um, in the intro to this episode. But you do kind of get to realize, once again, how sad it is that she probably talks more to this machine than to anybody else. Rest in peace, Alexa, though. Yeah, I mean, if I were, if I had an Alexa right now, I would do the same thing. So you probably should too. <laughs> I think I was relieved that that's the only character that dies this episode. <laughs> yeah, actually, I guess they are keeping up with the rate of um, one per episode if you include them as a character. And so we're kind of left in suspense when we cut to Elliot at a motel. Hey, do you think that they had to break like a bunch of Alexas to get the exact right take for this scene? Or maybe a bunch of things that looked like Alexas. <laughs> Alexi? Is that what the plural is? Yeah, like that's the knockoff version that, <laughs> you know, I would buy an Alexi. 
I was trying to look up whether the Dresden Taxi Company was a real New York taxi or uh, a reference, and I'm not sure. I think there are Dresden and Kurt Vonnegut are linked, and so that may it may be a sort of subtle nod to a conversation that um, comes up later in the episode as well. I think that you're onto something there because, um, like you're saying, they do revisit Kurt Vonnegut throughout this episode. I love seeing that Dom and Darlene get out of that taxi. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is the first point in the episode where my, you know, feelings really get punched um, because we do have, I think, what I read as the last time we'll see the Alderson siblings together, but I don't know if you interpreted it that way. I do. And um, it is it is sad to see just because we like to see them so much together. But I am also hoping that means that at least one of them is going to get out of your life. There's some really phenomenal acting. I think I've said this the last several episodes, but truly Carly Chaikin's performance this whole episode is extraordinary. And, um, you know, I'm I'm grateful that we get to see that performance from her and from Grace Gummer this episode. Yeah, yeah. And I'm silly not to... Um draw comparisons to Grace Grammer, who also has a really good performance this episode. With Carly Chaikin, I was thinking that there has to be some kind of, like, 80s rock and roll biopic that she can star in so she can reach the same um, level of fame as Remy Malek at this point, because her acting is absolutely just as good. And um, as as horrible as this is to say like i enjoyed like the moments when she was in despair just because you could see that she was able to uh, act in those situations in such a great way and um it's kind of difficult to imagine how hard it must be to act in a realistic way in situations like that her despair and i think her joy her joy is really wonderful uh when we get to the bench scene that we'll talk about but just to kind of close on the Alderson sibling piece. So it seems like there's one last step in the Deus group hack that hasn't been carried out. And Darlene tries to hand Elliot her phone to give him the opportunity to do it. What would you do with it? I would see, I would give it to you too. <laughs> That's just kind of like a reverse Uno card, isn't it? I feel like we'd be trying to give it to each other after you. No, 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 I couldn't possibly. <laughs> I feel like we probably have that both written on our wills too, so it'll just like deadlock all of our inheritance or whatever. Um, I'll push half the button and you push the other half the button at the same time. Um, the money has been laundered and they say it's ready to go out and we get to sit in suspense for a little bit about where it's going to and how it's going out. So when they're talking about using um, a tumbler, it, it kind of is something that's generally only exists on um, cryptocurrency networks. And you can see here that they're using eCoin. So the way that they're able to pull off this redistribution of wealth does kind of take advantage of um, the libertarian aspirations of eCorp in creating their own currency. And not having the regulations to reverse a hack like this ended up ultimately being their downfall. When they're using a Tumblr, these are... Um, actual services that exist for cryptocurrencies and you absolutely shouldn't use them because people have been convicted of um, money laundering for doing that. But the idea is kind of that if you have like a hundred or a thousand people who are all sending their Bitcoin into one Bitcoin address and then that address sends out all those Bitcoin in different increments to 1000 different addresses, even if the addresses belong to the same people, 
then you can't really correlate who is on the incoming ends with who is on the receiving end. It's kind of like an automated money laundering service, which people had started to use on the Bitcoin network. And now they're also using it here for Ecoin. It's nice that they can use it for the purposes of good. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's a, a, a virtuous form of money laundering for once. <laughs> <laughs> so Darlene says she's never been on a road trip and Elliot says he hasn't either. Did that? Did you think that was a callback to Homecoming? Um, I'm not sure if I remember off the top of my head what you're referring to. So Homecoming, that was a series that Sam Esmail produced as well. Yeah. And the main character in it, Heidi, the therapist, says to her patient at one point that she's never been on a road trip, and they start hypothetically planning one for one day. Oh, wow. And I guess like what they're kind of talking about is the... Um, idea of going on some fun adventure together that's like new and exciting to them i can definitely see some similarities there and i hadn't picked up on the um connection in the dialogue but I, I i can definitely see that so thank you for mentioning it elliot mentions sour patch kids as the ideal road trip candy snack <laughs> i think i can agree with that it's, they're up there. They're up there. Um, Dom is inside getting a can of Orange Crush, which I didn't know people over the age of like 12 drank Orange Crush, but you know, it's uh, it's her time. It's an upgrade from lollipops, I guess. Yeah, thank God they're, they're gone. I hated those lollipops <laughs> so much. When Dom walks into the motel room ahead of them. So she's not there for this conversation. And Darlene has forgotten to give her a crucial piece of information about who's going to be waiting on the other side of the door. <laughs> I love it because it starts off so tense and then it just becomes so humorous. How do you feel about the way that Leon reacts right here? I think he reacts just like I think Leon would react. Is he like actively rolling a joint while talking to her? Yeah, and he's watching The Land Before Time. <laughs> wow. I don't remember enough of the story of that movie, and strangely, it's not on Disney+. Plus. Uh, so I don't know if there's any connection between that story and this story, but that's what he's watching. I am surprised to learn that Leon has an accountant and is considering incorporating himself, though. Like Leon LLC. I guess it would be Leon LLC. Well, if he can decide on that, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he'd be a numbered corporation. <laughs> he also tries to tell Dom to get some rest. And that's when Dom and Darlene and Leon, they set off on a road trip to Boston. And the way that Darlene walks in and just says like, oh, I'm sorry, I should have told you. It really has a, a really immediate way of diffusing the tension. That's really hilarious. There are some little signs throughout the episode that make me think that even if this were a happily ever after story, Dom and Darlene in some ways are fundamentally very different and wouldn't make it. <laughs> and omitting that detail, I, I feel like is one of those red flags to me. I can definitely see that, especially when um, you're talking about stakes this high and you can see how Tom is actually worried. Leon seems to be a pretty good person to have on a road trip. And so they're taking the back roads to avoid the Dark Army stronghold of Connecticut. Apparently, Connecticut's got a lot of connections to them because of the, the RWAs, the rich white assholes uh, <laughs> that are the Dark Army's preferred clientele. As we all know, Mr. Robot said that power is just an asshole suffers money. Right. <laughs> so this is a nice parallel to the last road trip that Darlene took with Drunk Santa, who also made a comment about how nobody reads anymore. 
So I've actually started building a reading list called Nobody Fucking Reads Anymore, a Mr. Robot reading list of all the novels and plays and poems that are linked um, to the show in some way. So we'll share that at some point. So many post-season episodes we have coming up here. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, Leon says that he's got to steal a mirror. And so this is the Kurt Vonnegut reference. So it ties back to the Dresden taxi. But in Breakfast of Champions, there's a character, he calls mirrors leaks. He thinks they're portals between like two two worlds. And so when he says he's got to steal a mirror, uh, he means he has to take a piss. <laughs> Which sounds kind of perfect for Leon, actually, because it's just a great mixture of like crudeness and uh, literary expertise that I think we guys see with him. Exactly. Exactly. Like Leon is just spot on this whole episode. And I'm I'm really glad that he gets to come back for this cameo. So here's something I was wondering. Do you think that Darlene knows that he basically killed Princeton and Mobley? I don't think so. What do you think about that? What do I think about that? I think that I guess he could have assumed they would be killed, but it's possible he didn't know. And he he is a gun for hire. I mean, he's a mercenary. Like, Price is a mercenary. He's just much more charming, right? Oh, yeah. Actually, didn't you draw a connection between them in a past episode? Oh, I can't recall. So maybe I can see it that way. I love the bench scene, which I think are the only few minutes in the whole series where we see Darlene just joyful in a really uncomplicated kind of way. <laughs> and it is awesome. I think that this kind of reminded me of that season one scene before the awkward kiss where she was um, celebrating the five nine hack. I agree, except this time there's nothing to make it awkward. This is my second red flag for Dom where they're having a bit of an argument about the validity of the law and the nature of justice. And they have such fundamentally different positions about that dom thinks the law should be followed darlene says following the law that's written by powerful people to their own advantage is a vulnerability that can be exploited yeah and i mean i'm obviously really biased in this situation but what i was thinking of um was that well i i always kind of relate these things and maybe this is just like me being like a white mansplainer about politics but i think of the um Audrey Lord quote, which is that you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. So that like if um, the top 1% or the 1% are powerful enough to enforce the law um, and in some case have like um, extra military forces that can enforce their own set of laws, then um, it's really kind of powerless to act within the system to try and enforce any change because they control the system and the ways that it can affect them. I think in the face of that quote, Dom would say, but what if you could, though? <laughs> and bless her heart. Like, maybe she actually could be the one person to do it also. Like, we know how badass and committed she is. It's true. And of course, there have got to be some good hearted people in unfair systems. Um, but I think they have a really interesting conversation. And I think it, it's good to raise questions for us about what do we think economic justice looks like? So I appreciate that conversation that they have. Me too. And of course, um, the differing ideas of justice is something that has kind of come up as a recurring theme. We kind of get the impression that a lot of these characters have very similar goals overall, like about um, what changes they want to see in broad strokes. But all of them just have really different um, ideas of the specifics of it. And here we can see what Darlene envisions to be the future that she's been fighting for this whole time. And we can also see how it disagrees with what um, Dom and Elliot had expected. When they get back in the car, we see that uh, 
R.I.P. Uh, Leon's Cadillac. He's driving a Lincoln now. Do you think that's an upgrade or a downgrade? I think they are roughly equivalent. They're isomorphic. I think you'd have to define that for me, but I would suspect you were using the word correctly. It means equivalence. Yes. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Leon essentially pitches, kind of soft pitches, some work he might have for Darlene in the future. But I don't think she seems very interested in it. I felt like this was um, a setup for like a Better Call Saul style spinoff for Darlene. And maybe even Leon. And that might just be me being so aspirational about the series coming to a close. But... I, I would really love for that to happen. I would watch that weekly. So do you also like how um, he's so like encouraging of Darlene? I mean, he doesn't even really know her that well, but he can already tell that she's so skilled. I know. like He's certainly very complimentary about her work. And he tries to leave it open-ended for her to come back to it. They could call this spinoff till the next episode then. <laughs> That, that that quote did stand to me because I was just thinking, okay, maybe these two characters will make it to the next episode. This is the second time Dom gets quite a nasty surprise when she walks into the airport convenience store. I wouldn't consider it a nasty surprise, but I can see why she would. Well, she just freezes up in the same way when she first sees Leon because, of course, the only context she has for these people is a situation where her colleague got hacked to death with an axe. At what point did you notice that Irving was back? Did you notice it like when you saw the, the book? No, I noticed the book first. So there's this huge display of beach towel, which I think is just delightful. I think this whole scene is really just delightful. So I noticed that first. I noticed her looking around. And then we see that our old pal Irving seems to be living his best life. Yeah. And he also, he notably was not m mentioned in the um, the credits at the beginning. So they took some effort to not reveal this uh, this reveal here. It's so funny to see that his personality doesn't seem to fundamentally change in his civilian life, um, but he <laughs> seems to be really living it up on a book tour and he's just there by chance. Because at first, there's a moment where I wonder if he's there to kill her, but this is like the most small talk of conversations. It is, but I was still really convinced that he was here to kill her. <laughs> Do you think he's being truthful with her? Um, I guess that remains to be seen. I think that's maybe um, he he could have been here looking for her. Maybe they would have known that she would have been um, about to board a plane. And I'm just thinking about the um, potential spoiler territory of the the plane theory. So I'm really cautious about any situation that has dark army and planes right now. And I'm not really willing to believe that he is actually separated from the dark army just yet. I wanted to ask you earlier. What's the significance of the Patsy Klein poster to the plane theory? Oh, so Patsy Klein is like um, a, a country singer from um, early in the 1900s, I think, like maybe even before the 50s. I'm definitely no expert on this, but um, the theory is based on the fact that she died in a plane crash. And that's the only piece of decoration that's in Dom's apartment. Um, so that, in addition to some other shots that have... Um, particularly Darlene next to planes and also the shots that we've seen in the last few episodes of um, like staring up at planes in the sky. Those have been a bit of foreshadowing about what's coming ahead. Irving seems to be shockingly in the loop on all the dark army gossip. And he basically tells Don that there's nothing to worry about. They've kind of packed up and moved on to 
bigger and better RWAs somewhere else. <laughs> That's a nice way to phrase that. What do you think about what he says about uh, Janice? I could see that Janice could be a challenging employee, but I felt she was very dedicated. Exactly. Yeah. Like she just seemed like somebody who was going to get the job done, regardless of how despicable that job was. <laughs> exactly. She delivered. So I was kind of surprised to hear that they found her terribly annoying. <laughs> the bar scene at the airport bar. If you look at the way they're sitting and their body posture, it's a parallel of the first bar scene between Darlene and Don. Oh, wow, you're right. I actually hadn't noticed that. But um, now that I look at it, like it's almost shot by shot the same, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Now, of course, Dom's there on the pretext that they're running for their lives. And the context is fundamentally changed now. They don't have anything to run from. And that's when she gets cold feet. So it says going to show you that she believes what she just heard from Irving. She does seem to think it's very credible, credible enough that she no longer wants to go. And that's when we learn their destination is Budapest. Which has some symbolism in the series as the destination that Darlene and Cisco had always planned on going to. I don't know that you should take your new girlfriend to the place that your old boyfriend wanted to take you. I mean, at least not tell them. That just makes it strange. <laughs> that's what I thought was strange. I thought... I mean, as viewers, we all know that that's why she would go to Budapest. I just didn't think she'd say it so plainly, but she is Darlene. And also, Tom was there when he got murdered and was covered in his blood. So that just makes it even more awkward. What's more awkward is that Dom seems to have prepared a phone number of someone at U.S. Cyber Command that she wants Darlene to contact about a job. I was kind of glad to hear that, actually, because I was always afraid of being a hacker would disqualify you from getting a government job in the future so hopefully it does mean they look past that every now and then yeah not so apparently um red flag the third darlene says your solution is for me to become some pig guess what dumb is <laughs> did you see the um the viral starbucks photo of like the person who went to get a, a coffee and they had their name written as pig because they were a police officer and then it turned out to be fake. <laughs> I did. Um, the employee was terminated anyway. Yes, unfortunate. There's a GoFundMe or some such for, for that person, I believe, um, because there was an allegation that it was false. So obviously Darlene is not going to add this person on LinkedIn. And that's when Dom says, you know, it'll be there for you when you grow up. And I think that line must sting so badly. How much difference do you think there is in age between them? I think very little. I think she means attitudinally and behaviorally. Okay. I'll take it from you, even though you just said attitudinally. That's a perfectly cromulent word. <laughs> well played. Oh, sorry. That was two references. Okay. I'll do zero <laughs> next time. So this is this is a really beautifully executed, heart-wrenching scene where we see maybe, you know, their star-crossed lovers and their story is not going to work out for them. It is so sad. And you can also just, um, you can feel the emotion that's coming out of the actors as they're performing it. And you can feel that just as, as you're watching it. It has all the more strength to it because... Um, with each passing scene, you have to wonder, is this the last scene that I'm going to see these characters, or is this the last scene that um, the characters are going to see each other? Because I know that I was thinking that many times um, throughout the rest of this episode, that like, oh, maybe this is the last time we'll ever see Tom, or maybe this is the last time we'll ever see Darlene. I agree that 
it does evoke a lot of emotion in the viewer. It really does a good job. And I think you're exactly right that it's those questions that are unanswered for us about is this the end of the story for these two together or for these characters at all? Um, it heightens, you know, our response to it. And it's really just beautifully done. And so we have a few moments where they're apart. I forget at this point that Dom's just had lung surgery when she... Actually, I think I said to you yesterday, this might be my favorite rom-com of all time because she takes off doing the airport run back to the terminal. (laughs) And they actually make it look pretty realistic for like an ordinary airport run. Now, of course, if you've seen the episode, which we certainly hope you have, um, we see that just as Dom is racing back, Darlene chokes. She starts to have a panic attack and she actually steps out of line. Right. So this really kind of twists that rom-com trope on top of its head. And they had set us up for a reunion of these two characters. And then we don't get that. We actually get a pretty radical divergence in a way that is even more divergence than we had thought five minutes ago. I wanted to ask you, did you like the ending? I, I think that I liked it because it was so very Esmail. Like, I think that it's something that I can think that um, characterizes his stories very well. It does. Uh, if it has any objectionable bits to me, it's the cliffhanger. But I do really like the twist. I really like the twist, too. I have to say, I think in the first five minutes after I saw it, I didn't. Because, of course, our hopes are so high for their love story and their future. But when I was re-watching it today, getting ready for this podcast, I thought, what if Dom is running for herself? What do you mean by that? Well, what if she realizes, you know, no, there isn't anything there for her. Yes, she does need a break and a reset and maybe some new challenges or new experiences. So maybe going away really is what's good for her. And that's why she goes. Because remember, when we see her on the plane... I think she knows Darlene's not coming. The seat next to her is empty, but she stays on that plane anyway. Oh, great point. And, you know, if they had known that their boarding passes were next to each other, then she'd know that Darlene wasn't there. I hadn't considered that at all. I thought that she just sort of assumed that they hadn't been able to connect and maybe they were elsewhere on the plane. So me and you probably have, like, really different interpretations of this from here on out. Um, Just what you had said, though, about how um, maybe Dom is realizing that like breaking free in this one moment is good for her. I also think that people have been saying that for Darlene, it's also been good for her to um, stay behind and realize that she can kind of like overcome these panic attacks by herself. So in some ways it's actually better for them to split up because Dom is able to um, really like spread her wings and Darlene is able to become more confident um, in the absence of each other. I think it's a really wonderful line when Darlene, so she, she's facing herself in the mirror. So it reminds me of that scene where Shayla has Angela look at herself and talks about taking care of you when Darlene faces herself in the mirror and says, no, it's okay. I can take care of myself. The first time she's probably ever thought that in her whole life. So I kind of like their independent trajectories where they make a painful choice And maybe in doing so, they get what they need. And, you know, I think there's a hopeful part of many of us that hopes their paths cross again one day. So one thing I noticed is that this whole episode, they've been trying to get Dom to sleep. She finally is able to, in spite of all of her difficulties, when she's actually on the plane. 
So I think that's maybe kind of her coming to coming to terms with her situation and also feeling more optimistic about the future. So regardless of what's ahead of her, she seems to feel pretty good about it, right? I think you're right. I think that's the ultimate symbol that she has found some peace, even if it's only for a moment. So what do you think about how this relates to the infamous plane crash theory? So I was trying to think about what does it mean to the story for the plane to crash? Because I think what they've done here is they've given pretty effective closure, I think, for the Dom character. So I think if we didn't see Dom again in the next three episodes, I think that would seem right in terms of the story structure. So I thought, what would it mean for the plane to crash to and to resurrect that storyline, you know, for one more harm to be done to Darlene, who seems to be kind of back on a good path for her. And I don't, I just don't see it, I guess. But do you still think there's something to the plane crash theory? Well, I think what they had really kind of like tried to point us in that direction as much as they could. And maybe one of the twists of the season is just the fact that that didn't actually happen in spite of all of our expectations. I was still kind of thinking that it would happen, but um, kind of like you were saying about what the storyline implications would be. What would it matter for Dom to almost die in one season, in one episode and then to recover and then just die in the subsequent episode? Like they wouldn't really have any purpose. Um, the only thing that you could think of would be that it would be to give Darlene additional motivation in some kind of like unfortunate late series fridging. And of course, we don't want to see the family and relationship be reduced to that. So I think that maybe this actually is a good kind of conclusion to those characters and a good way to literally like send Dom off into the sunset. And then we can hope that she's just going to be outside of harm's way from here on out. I think choosing Carly Rae Jepsen in the background is for sure. It seems like a weird music choice, but again, I think that's I think that's a fan service piece. Do you ever have one of those moments where you're listening to a song and you really like it and then you find out who it's by and you're like, oh, shit, I have to stop liking that right now <laughs> because I thought it was just so catchy. And I, maybe Carly Rae is just Carly Rae Jepsen has just got like a really bad rap. But I actually thought the song was pretty well suited for this scene. Actually, Jepsen's a guilty pleasure of mine. And I think this album too is considered to be kind of filled with queer anthems so i think it's okay i think it's okay to like it she's also canadian so oh of course that's true get your can con in there that's right so i probably had to fill 30 percent of the episode with it yeah (laughs) it plays on a loop for 20 minutes after the end (laughs) uh one last thought before we come to the end were you surprised we didn't see any continuation of the White Rose storyline beyond that first newscast. Um, I wasn't surprised just because I know that they've really kind of twisted the story up like a pretzel. They kind of tend to go from one different storyline to a different storyline in between every single episode. So we'll probably get back to that um, in the next episode. And then in the two-part finale after that, I imagine that they're all going to tie back into each other like some kind of grand episode of Seinfeld. I can't wait. Well, thank you so much for listening to Mr. Rewatch. We have just a few more episodes in this series, and we're delighted that we'll be reviewing them with you. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Tune in again next week. Bonsoir.